Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It's a groovy radiology podcast. <laughs> My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me on the disco dance floor, giving us a little night fever, it's my co-host, Francesco Gaylard. Hey, I was born in the 70s. You weren't, were you? No, you're a youngster. Well and truly, I was not. I was, I was very much a 70s boy. So we're recording this at night, Gaylard. So as is our tradition for nighttime mm. recordings, I emailed you a list of popular cocktails from the 1970s. Yes, you did. Any of those take your fancy? No, they're awful. The grasshopper? <laughs> the Harvey Wallbanger, the Blue Hawaiian. Yeah, they did all look terrible, didn't they? They're horrible and they're these modern, colourful, rubbish things. They would have looked good on the dance floor, though. <laughs> sure, sure, of course, with a disco ball and mirrors all over the place. Now, I'm, an, I'm a classic cocktail fan, so my favourite drink at the moment is a an Australian riff on a Negroni, which is, oh, yeah. uh, have you heard of Mac? Sort of similar to Frangelico, but nowhere near as sweet, made with macadamias that are oh, okay. uh, indigenous to Australia. A, a nice buttery kind of nut. I think it's got the hardest shell of any nuts. Anyway, um, so Mac is <laughs> Mac's this liqueur, but it's not sweet at all. And you replace the Campari with Mac okay. and make a Negroni. And it's delicious and it's is it really called good. a macaroni, macaroni. <laughs> ah stuck a feather in his cap <laughs> well that's what i've called it i don't know but... you melt a little bit of cheese on top do you mate no. put it in the oven what no <laughs> <laughs> isn't mac and cheese <laughs> yes no that would be something from the 70s yeah that would yeah, be a little cocktail stick with a bit of cheese <laughs> Fondue cocktails. So, yeah, we're talking about the 70s for a reason, actually, because this week we have an interview that you recorded with, I think, your first ever radiology boss, uh, Professor Brian Tress, exploring what radiology was like back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And this is actually episode 20, Frank, but this is only the second time that you've been responsible (laughs) for putting together the main segment of the podcast. So you've officially helped with 10% of episodes to this point. You think that's fair, mate? I think that is amply fair and you should consider yourself lucky that you get that much out of me. It's always a slippery slope with you, Dixon. You engage in something and you say, oh, you won't have to do anything. And before you know it, every weekend, every evening. I thought you were going to say something, you know, it only takes me one in 10 to come up with the same quality that I I achieve in nine episodes. Sure. Let's do that as well. That's probably true. (laughs) Just a reminder that next week we're doing a hostful episode. So if listeners could please send in questions, comments, leave reviews around the place, that would be great. And um, who knows, we might just read them out on the podcast. Um, now, I'm keen to to hear what radiology was like in the 70s, um, but did you want to quickly introduce Brian before I hit play, Gaylord? Yeah. So, Brian Tress was the head of the Royal Melbourne Hospital Department back in the early 2000s when I first became a trainee there. And by the time I'd finished, he'd already retired or semi-retired and certainly stepped down as head of department. And of everyone who's taught me anything, he's one of the people that has had the most impact really on my career, not just because he was an awesome neuroradiologist and a a really good teacher as well, but mostly actually because he was an exceptional mentor Mm -hmm. and he led the department by example. He was kind to everyone. He was understanding and most importantly, and something that I think you don't see as much as you should, he spoke to everyone exactly the same way 
there was never any kowtowing to the professor of neurosurgery and never any talking down to orderlies or nurses or anyone mm. else. Everyone got exactly the same person and it was genuine and understanding and just a, an amazing role model to have. You know, he's been an aspirational high watermark for me. I don't think I've ever been able to be quite as uh, positive about all my interactions with people. Uh, I never saw Byron get upset or angry, and I can't mm-hmm. say the same for myself. But so it was a real pleasure to get to speak to him now, almost 20 years later, or certainly 10 or 15 years later. All right. Well, let's uh, listen in to Frank and Brian Tress talking about radiology in the 70s, and then we'll both be back for another chat. Hello, Brian, and thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? It's a pleasure, Frank, to join you. I'm well, thank you. Now, I'm coming up to almost my 50th birthday. And I found myself reminiscing with my trainees about the differences between their experience as a radiology trainee now versus mine, which was now, you know, 20 or so years ago. In my training, I started without packs and it was all printed film. And it's made me think that as a profession, we haven't been very good at capturing these differences and capturing the experience of radiology across different decades. And I remember when training with you, I got a sense that there was a a great difference between your experience as a trainee to mine. And so I wanted to kind of selfishly just have a chat about that and go back to when you first were thinking about doing radiology. And, And if you could take us back to when that was and how radiology was perceived at the time. I had uh, done medicine in the 60s and had three years of uh, junior residency and then a medical registrar year because at that stage I was thinking of doing neurology. In fact, I found that most of my time with the neurology patients were spent going to the radiology department and uh, where they were doing these wonderful things called angiograms and pneumoencephalograms, which were the two main head investigation radiology studies at the time. So I had a very similar transition to radiology. As you might remember, I did neurosurgery before radiology, and I'd never really considered radiology until I had a career crisis and realized that neurosurgery was really not for me. And I didn't really have a sense of any other really options. And I came very close to dropping out of medicine entirely. And the fact that I'd been exposed to radiology during my neurosurgery residency meant that I put that in as a last attempt at doing something medical. And you were kind enough to give me a job. The experience, I think, of seeing the radiology department in the early 2000s must have been very different to what it was back in the 70s. What was radiology like and how was it perceived in the hospital at large. It was uh, one of the least respected specialties in the hospital, partly because maybe medicine and surgery was attracting top students in many ways. And people didn't really know a lot about what was happening in radiology. So sometimes there were some people who were different sort of personalities as well. So do you think the personality of radiologists has changed? Yes. What sort of personalities were attracted to radiology in the late 60s and early 70s? Well, there were people who didn't seem to have a lot of academic interest in in medicine, in radiology. They were really quite a minority. And 
it didn't have any glamorous aspects to it like many of the other elements did. The best parts of them, to my mind, was in fact those neuroradiological investigations, which were probably difficult to do at times and difficult to interpret. So they had real merit. So I want to go back to angiography later on, but at the time, we're really talking about plane films with barium studies, angiography and venography, and I guess ultrasound was already starting? Yeah, but it was in its infancy, absolute infancy when I was starting. Right. So I did uh, very little practical ultrasound until I went to Queen Square and the, uh, even then. And so you became a radiology registrar, which is what we call our trainees yeah. in Australia and the UK. And um, what was training like? And do you get a sense that your hand was held a great deal or much less than these days with training? Much less because there was only so much time that the full-time radiologists had. So once they had determined that your knowledge was good and your physical ability was adequate, that you were safe, you did actually get to do lists pretty early on. Right. And so in terms of the procedures, and again, we'll, we'll come back to angiography later, You mentioned pneumoencephalography. That's something I've seen a few examples of in textbooks, but I've never actually seen one done. Can you talk us through what that involved? Because I'm pretty sure there are tilting tables and and all sorts of unpleasantness. (laughs) Yes. Yes. The extraordinary thing is it is a most elegant uh, anatomical demonstration but a brutal, relatively brutal investigation because you're right, the uh, the patient was sat in a chair, lumbar puncture was performed, air was introduced into the head and patient positioning was then vital. So the, the well-off departments did indeed have a mechanical tilting chair that could actually do a somersault, could do a 360 degree with the patient strapped in. It was a sophisticated business. At the Royal Melbourne, as with many other things, it was not a hot hospital rich in facilities. So there was no tilting chair, no chair. So when it came time for the pneumoencephalogram to be performed, hands from the radiographers in particular, it had to be more often the male than the female radiographers because the movements were done by lifting the patient and bodily taking them through a somersault or whatever else was necessary to get the air into into the parts of the ventricular system you wanted it. How much volume of air would you put in and presumably drain out an equivalent amount of CSF in the process? Yes, it was up to 50 cc's of air wow. and uh, th- 30 or 40 cc's at least of CSF was drained out. And how did patients tolerate this? It was difficult. That was a uh, headache was almost inevitable. It, it even had a complication rate which included death. Right. So it was not to be taken lightly at all. And then the aim of controlling the patient's movement was to allow the air to bubble up into various compartments yes. to assess for mass effect. Essentially, that was all that you could really uh, determine. Yes. If you didn't do it correctly at the start, the air could bubble up into the subarachnoid space around the brain and then you're gone. You couldn't do it anymore on that investigation. But a full investigation with uh, in the ventricles also did include air in the subarachnoid space subsequently. And so did pneumoencephalography precede contrast myelography or cystonography? Ventriculography done by neurosurgeons, I think, happened almost simultaneously. This was a direct ventricular puncture? Yes. Pneumoencephalography may indeed have been just a 
touch later. And so it did probably replace a number of the ventricular grams that were done via the neurosurgical hand. And in terms of contrast myelography with uh, myodil, was that, which we're now not seeing anymore, but for years we still had patients turning up with little droplets left and horrible arachnoiditis of uh, their cauda equina. From my understanding, that was particularly unpleasant as well. Yes, the myodil itself had long-term and short-term aspects, and the needles that were used had quite long angled parts, so that one of the skills was to get the whole needle end into the subrectal space. If it was only half in, it could end up with uh, myodil being injected into the epidural space, which not only affected the quality of the examination, sometimes rendering it possible to make any good conclusions, but it was very difficult to remove from those spaces. One of the memories that I have from, it must have been first year training for me, and you were supervising me in fluoroscopy. And at the time, we were still doing cervical myelograms with direct cervical punctures up at C12. And these needles are long, and you know that the brainstem and and cord are just there. And I was heading in very hesitantly. I think I asked you, what happens if you hit the cord? And you looked at me blankly and said, oh, don't worry about it. We used to do this on purpose when we did syringography. And I remember just thinking in that moment, boy, things have changed because the idea of, of pushing a needle directly into someone's spinal cord on purpose is, is very alien to, I think, modern trainees. And in terms of consenting patients, these days, a lot of the procedures we perform, whether it's a nerve root or an epidural injection or whatever, the consent process and the timeout and the checking the address and the name and the date of birth 12 times and the documenting on the patient with a marker which side you're doing it on, et cetera, takes often three, four, five times as long as the actual procedure. My guess is that at the start of your career, consent would have been substantially different. Yes. Yes, it was. It was often just oral. Do you think the difference in consent was purely from the medical establishment that had a more paternalistic approach to medicine? Or was there also just a different expectation from patients? that they were putting themselves in your hands without necessarily needing to be informed of what was happening? I think that's a big part of it. I think that uh, uh, patients were prepared to accept anything that their trusted doctors, and for the most part at least, uh, were prepared to suggest they needed to have. And uh, consequently, I cannot remember any patient not going through with the procedure. There's a clip that I want to play you from a movie, one of It's probably one of my favourite movies, sort of. The Exorcist, the original. Uh, I think it was filmed in 1973. And uh, there's a very famous section of it where the girl who is possessed by a demon or potentially possessed by a demon goes in for a whole bunch of investigations. And there's an extended sequence where she has a a cerebral angiogram performed. Uh, I just want to play you some of these noises and see whether they uh, take you back. Okay, you're going to feel some pressure here. Now, don't move. Hook up.
So, Brian, those noises presumably represent the film being exchanged rapidly during an angiography run? Yes. So this was all pre-digital. So you had, what was it, a stack of films being exposed in rapid sequence? Yes, yes. And it was probably a, a very trying for the patient with those cerebral ones were done with that film changer, maybe having four x-rays loaded up and they that they're x-rays in a cassette with a handle on them. And it was usually a radiographer that was uh, uh, doing the pulling of the cassettes and the radiologist who was in, would inject the contrast medium, uh, having positioned it beforehand safely and uh, which must have been a very worrying time for the patient because apart from feeling the, the heat there were these loud cries of pull pull <laughs> pull three to four times as, as the heat uh, went through and past them uh, so it was a noisy procedure from that point of view mind you not as noisy as the abdominal changes and this that would use some were big role changes others were multiple multiple Cassette, single cassettes, and that was a mechanical cacophony, yeah. uh, which filled the radiology department while it was going. And, and the other aspect of that procedure in the video clip, and we'll link to it in the show notes, is that um, there's a direct carotid puncture uh, for this. Yes, with uh, it does show a Seldinger technique, but it is directly into the neck. And from what I understand, that's fairly accurate as well. Yes. At the Royal Melbourne, Bill Hare, who was the uh, head of the department, who was a marvellous radiologist in many, many areas, and one of them was neuroradiology because he trained at, uh, in Norway mm-hmm. many years before in, in cerebral angiography as well. So we were a bit fortunate in that we were, most of our studies were done via catheter. Right. In fact, there was an arbitrary limit. The patients over 60 had direct punctures. The ones under 60, you'd be catheter first. And that was just because catheters were expensive and uh, were in short supply? or No, because that, that, that was more difficult to get around ah, the, the uh, elongated vessels in the over 60s. So that uh, it became a more risky and sometimes a, a non-productive procedure when it was uh, people who were skilled in the direct punctures it was a very fast yeah. quick procedure and if memory serves me right there used to be a few uh tress catheters around weren't there yes yes that's quite correct because to to help manipulate the catheters around the environment sure there was a guide wire going through them but you need, needed to have a particular shape of catheter mm-hmm. to enable you to get into the carotids and into the vertebrals and in the elderly patients taking into account those those uh, large bins. So in fact, although I said before that arbitrarily we did over 60s with direct puncture, as the techniques and the catheter shaping Mm -hmm. became a bit more informed and expert, then we did try with catheters virtually every patient. And you also were doing direct aortic punctures for... Yes. Translumbar aortograms were done with the patient lying prone on the on the table yeah and uh it was a hand's breadth away from the from the spinal column and uh it was surprisingly effective very rarely did it fail yeah. and very rarely was was there a sub intimal 
inject accidental injection. So it was a, presumably there was significant retroperitoneal bleeding that you never would have seen because there was no cross-sectional correct. imaging. Would they get a lot of bruising? No, not surface bruising. So it was it was actually hidden, tamponaded. Yes, the, the self-tamponaded. And that brings us, I guess, to the introduction of cross-sectional imaging. So CT would have come in in the early eighties. Is that right? No, it was actually. 76 i think right uh, i came i was uh, i was very fortunate enough to work at queen square in london where the second ct scanner in the world <laughs> uh emi ct scanner was being used in 1974 1975 and these are with just head only and with water bags that, that stage it was just the head ones yeah it was another two years before the the bigger companies were able to get into the business emi had the they had the uh, the sole authorship of, the, of these first CT scanners. And what was the feeling amongst radiologists with the introduction of this new technology? In some ways, I can imagine that all the skill and um, artistry of interpreting plane films and interpreting angiography or venography to see essentially indirect signs of pathology to then be shown a picture that just sort of shows it to you at some levels there must have been an element of oh my lord now everyone will be able to do what we do was that at all a sense at the time or was there just great excitement to finally be able to see inside no you've hit the nail on the head there were many radiologists who thought they were going to be out of business the ones that were doing that sort of business anyway. Uh, because you're right, the the skills in interpreting angiograms by knowing the vessel anatomy and when the vessels are being displaced and so on was, was a, a real science. But what actually happened was that there was a new set of skills that had to be developed. So in fact, it, it actually led to more need for skilled interpreters. It actually increased the potential for radiologists to be required. No doubt CT is now sort of the workhorse of radiology. And I would be surprised if it wasn't the dominant source of work for radiologists and has generated enormous amounts of work in investigating things that you would never have dreamt of even looking. Appendicitis being a a classic example where not that long ago, the idea was that you shouldn't get imaging because, you know, if you're not taking out at least one normal appendix for every abnormal one, you're not doing enough exploratory laparotomy. And that sort of yes. way of thinking has been completely changed by cross-sectional imaging. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, it's transferred the fear of losing what was what your occupation transferred the fear in some cases to surgeons, for instance, who Hmm. were not going to be doing the same number of exploratory abdominal operations. Well, now the dominant fear is, of course, artificial intelligence taking over uh, radiologist jobs, which um, I have views on this and I don't think our our job specifically is particularly at risk, but I won't bore you with my slightly conspiratorial theories (laughs) of this. But I think there's always been throughout history, whenever there's change, people do feel threatened that their way of doing it. And no doubt there are subgroups within radiology that have been marginalised, just as with with surgeons. If um, vascular surgeons are an example of, I think, a craft group that has been struggling over the last few decades to maintain a, a reason to exist, given that cardiologists do the heart, radiologists can do pretty much 
everything else and there's you know less and less need for many of the procedures that were their bread and butter. Yes. But overall, medicine is increasing in its in its scope. The other cross-sectional modality that came in, I think, while you were head of department was the first MR at Royal Melbourne. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And that was, when, when roughly was that? 1984. Right. The Phonar 0.3 Tesla scale. Oh, 0.3. Yeah. <laughs> and was that one of the first ones in Australia to come in? It was. Almost simultaneously, within a couple of weeks of each other, the Royal Melbourne put in the 0.3 Tesla scanner. And the uh, Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney put in a 1.5 Tesla GE magnet, which was uh, what I'd, I'd been working on, uh, on sabbatical at UCSF in San Francisco just in the year before the, the choice was made. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was absolutely disgusted that the choice of a crazy little 0.3 Tesla scanner had been selected ahead of all the other well-proven ones in San Francisco, they had uh, six MRI scanners by this time, all of which were 1.5 Tesla. Well, that's not surprising because, I mean, Australia has historically and and continues to suffer from really a gross lack of access to MR. But going back to that era, I believe there's a story about the uh, that first scanner periodically not working and taking a while to work out what the cause of that intermittent maybe every 10 minutes or so failure was yes the geography of the royal melbourne hospital came in into that and it hadn't been thought through but the royal melbourne is pretty central for those who don't know it it's in just just north of the 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 city of melbourne and it's surrounded by uh, very good public transport systems so there were trams on two sides at least and it was the the effect of the magnetic fields generated by the trams that were interfering with the unshielded 0.3 Tesla magnet. (laughs) And uh, so shielding had to be bumped up in a big way. Now, I'm not sure if um, you've kept abreast of developments at Royal Melbourne, but I guess 40 years later, the same problem has recurred. Oh, I hadn't had. Because uh, they are now digging an underground railway station that runs next to the hospital. And uh, at no stage did anyone consider or remember this particular event where, you know, a three-carriage train moving rapidly made up of hundreds of tonnes of steel would generate a magnetic field. And it turns out that all the scanners at Royal Melbourne and those across the road at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre cannot be adequately shielded, even with active shielding. And the result is that we've now got a new MR department on the ninth floor of an adjacent building uh-huh. that should be far away enough and had four magnets craned in on the same day to to replace them. Gee. And so, you know, the lessons have not been remembered. Corporate history has failed us. Oh, dear. That, that is a sad and expensive mistake. Well, on the flip side, we get a nice new shiny MR department with all new magnets. So, you know, there is a benefit. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, Brian. It's uh, been fun. I'm sure we could talk at much greater length and we'll have to have you back. You bring uh, back. Talk through some of the other changes. You bring back many happy memories, Frank, including the memories of you you first coming to the, to the Royal Melbourne Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, those were the days. 
mean, that was quite good, wasn't it, Gaylad? But I am, I must say, I am a little, a little disappointed in you. I mean, where, where were the questions about, you know, 70s music, fashion, haircuts? You know, how wide were Brian's neckties? How flared were his pants? About as wide as they are now. <laughs> Did they smoke in the reporting room? Were the reporting room lamps lava lamps? I mean, come on. The big questions, mate. I actually thought of uh, splitting the interview over two episodes because we were having so much fun and I could have got to those. But then I thought of all the grief you'd give me, although I didn't know that you were going to give me grief about not contributing enough. So maybe I should have and then I would have bumped up my stats to 15%. Yeah, you're going to do long form (laughs) interviews split over multiple weeks now. I I can see your strategy emerging here. (laughs) So as I listened, I, uh, I jotted down some thoughts. Should I just go through those, Caleb, with you? Or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, all right. Okay, so pneumoencephalogram. Yes. Or if it's for my voice recognition, I need to say encephalogram. I need to say hydrocephalus, uh, yes. otherwise it doesn't pick it up. This is how American imperialism oh, works. Yeah. You know, it's not through military power. It's through voice <laughs> it's recognition. Voice recognition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the pneumoencephalogram part was fascinating. I thought about the occupational health and safety aspects of that in modern times. Because imagine like a radiographer manhandling a patient through 360 degrees. Neither of the words occupational and healthy existed back in the 70s. Hi, my name's Andrew. I'm your radiologist today. And and this is your radiographer, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I thought with the um, the pneumoencephalograms was you kind of skipped over it, but how... On earth, do you actually get the gas that you inject to track specifically into the ventricles rather than into the sulcal spaces? Like, how does that work? So this is a really interesting part of how the knowledge that we have about our anatomy, when we think of anatomy, we think of it as being this static, you know, there is anatomy and we know it and it's always the same. But in fact, the anatomy that we get taught and that we learn is pretty much entirely dependent on the uses that we have for Mm. that knowledge. And so back in Brian's day, venous cerebral anatomy was something that everyone knew a lot about. Whereas now, I mean, how many cerebral veins can you name? Galen. Yeah. Whereas (laughs) displacement of veins and the angles that they're meant to have was really important because in angiography, that was the main thing that you were able to identify to localize lesions. And similarly, arachnoid membranes were, I think, much better understood than they are now. I've done my little part in trying to revive the arachnoid membrane story Mm -hmm. because we can see them on high-resolution T2. My understanding of the subarachnoid space before doing this project that we eventually published in AJNR last year or two years ago, I think, was that the subarachnoid was just this one space with little trabecula. Yeah. But in fact, there are sheets of arachnoid membranes that compartmentalize the basal cisterns into pretty much watertight compartments with only single inlets and outlets. And that's particularly true in the posterior fossa. So to get CSF from the posterior fossa up and into the supratentorial compartment, you have to go through the prepontine cistern. Everything else is kind of locked in the posterior fossa. So as long as you tilt the patient to avoid air getting into that cistern, you can get it to go up through Magendi and Lushka into the fourth ventricle and then up into the ventricles that way. And that's why the rotation was so important. It was to control where the air was at any one time and prevent it from going up into the supratentorial space. And Brian alluded to this was 
when you got bubbles all over the place, you, you couldn't make heads or tails out of the imaging. You wonder whether, you know, when you do a third ventriculostomy, whether that kind of disrupts things because it's putting stuff the wrong way into that prepontine system. Yeah, well, one of the best known and thickest membranes is the membrane of Liliquist mm-hmm. that goes from the dorsum cella up to the well, it's got two leaves. I'm not going to bore you with the details, <laughs> but it's got two leaves, one that goes to the mammillary bodies and the other one that sort of fades out to the mesencephalic pontine junction. And you can sometimes see that on high-resolution T2. And that, when you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a interpeduncular hemorrhage, often the hematoma won't spread anterior to the membrane of the liliquist, mm. and it's sort of stuck around the basilar tip. And when they do third ventriculostomies, depending on where that membrane is, they might need to open that up as well to get a proper um, opening. It's really actually very you interesting. Said, you said to me that you'd had quite a few cocktails before this podcast and that you might not be very coherent. I know arachnoid membranes very, very well. <laughs> I've drunkenly bored people before with them. <laughs> That's right. This is exactly the sort of thing I talk about at parties. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, now, the direct carotid puncture was another part yes. of the um, the episode that I really enjoyed. That scene from The Exorcist, hearing it. I don't actually think I've ever watched The Exorcist. Well, you should link to that clip in the show notes. I but will. the movie The Exorcist is awesome. And it really stands up, even though it was filmed in the early 70s, I think. Yeah. It's full on horror, right? Like, yeah. Even it's... that audio clip sounded scary to me. Yeah. It's not saw like. It's not slasher at all. Yeah. There's a lot of pea soup and some practical effects that are okay, but it's mostly yeah, suspenseful. And the book is great as well. So, yeah, very highly recommend. Okay, I'll check it out. Tress catheter is the next thing I've got written here. <laughs> yes. The only thing I can think about with that was that has Frank ever invented something? Because you seem like the kind of guy who would have, you know, had a little tinker. Have you invented anything? Uh, I mean, if you can't putting pieces of paper over the down lights to stop direct lighting and to make nice diffuse lighting and invention, no, probably not. I do not I mean, I've that. done CAD sort of AI stuff mm. that I guess is a tool, but that really... Mate, I don't count software no, tools. I'd love to have my own device. Yeah, I want an actual tool that no. is funny shaped and does some very obscure task that you've created. No, I, I have I have no funny shaped obscure <laughs> task tool. <laughs> Yeah, but this is um, the the days of catheters. When I started training, we were still doing even as a general radiology trainee, we were doing cerebral angiograms, hmm. and we would still shape our own catheters with hot water. In sometimes, instead of using a hink or whatever, you'd have the boiling hot water, and you'd have to hold the catheter under the water and shape it to just how you wanted. Hmm. I mean, it makes me sound hmm. like I'm a thousand years old, but that's not that long ago. The next one I have written here is translumbar aortic puncture. When you asked him about, you know, the bleeding and he, and you said no surface bruising, <laughs> it reminded me of a Brooklyn Nine-Nine quote. I think like Jake Peralta has been hit by a car or something and he's been taken to, to hospital and the, and the guys are like, uh, Jake, you know, you could have died, man. And he's like, uh, I wasn't hurt that bad. The doctor said all my bleeding was internal. That's where the blood's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, so good I couldn't help but think of that one it's a different era I remember one of my consultant trainees who's a hepatologist Professor Gibson who when I had a look after a liver biopsy to see whether there was any bleeding from the liver surface he's like don't look 
Never look. There's always a lot of bleeding. It always stresses you out and it's awful. Just just don't look and just move on. <laughs> Imagine doing CTs after every direct aortic puncture. It must have been horrific what you would see in the retroperitoneum, but they didn't have it, so it's fine. No external bleeding. It's all good. It's a bit like a neurointerventionalist these days, not not really wanting the MRI to occur directly after because you will see those tiny yes. little DWI dots of the tiny little infarcts yeah. they've caused. The final thing I've written here is uh, where will we be in 20 to 30 years from now? You know, mm. what what things will we look back at and go, you know, man, that was crazy. We used to we used to Fourier transform the waves into images and actually look <laughs> at the pictures with our own human eyes. That's crazy. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll say something along the lines of, did you know that we used to spend a lot of our time just looking for the abnormality? <laughs> We actually had to <laughs> scroll through ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but there could be, you know, completely new tech. You know, obviously we've got like photon counting CT coming through the pipeline yeah. now, but there may be completely new modalities. It's been a very long time since we had a new modality. Mm. Like we haven't had one during all of our careers. I mean, you can talk about photon counting, whatever, but uh, how, how big a difference that is, uh, it doesn't count as a new modality. Mm. It's 50% interesting, 50% marketing strategy. I think the biggest difference will actually be that we won't be spending anywhere near as much time trying to find abnormalities. I think we'll still spend quite a lot of time working out what the abnormality is and integrating all the different AI suggestions, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you have to look through a CT chest to find the nodule or an aneurysm or whatever it is, yeah. it just feels... That is backwards. We already shouldn't be doing it. All right, man. Groovy, let's wrap this episode up. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with ideas and feedback. And don't forget that next week is a hostful. Hostful. So we need enough content to fill up a whole episode just on our own. Otherwise, it's an hour of arachnoid membranes. (laughs) (laughs) I could seriously do that. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass that gives you access not only to our online courses but also our upcoming conference Mm -hmm. that's very soon, Radiopedia 2023. July 24 to 28. And perhaps more importantly than giving you access to all this content and more importantly than supporting us, by doing so, you're helping us be able to give away the conference and all the courses for free to people from 125 low and middle income countries. And and what else can people do to help us out, Frank? And don't forget that you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Awesome. awesome. What is your preferred podcast app, Dixon? I was actually wondering how long it would be before you asked me the same question that you asked in like episode two, which was oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is some kind of dementia screening test or something. So that was what, nineteen weeks ago now. Okay, so that's not bad. That's not bad. It's actually worse because right now I can't for the life of me remember what the app that I use is called. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is funny. So I think that is my mini mental test. We're down well below 30. I believe it's overcast, Frank. Even I remember it, mate. It's got an, it's got an orange app icon. I don't even use it. Overcast has the uh, 
pause reduction. I know, you told us in episode two. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm just going to stop talking and drink my drink. And we'll catch you all again sometime soon, repeating ourselves (laughs) over and over again in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. Did I say that before? (laughs) No, first time. That's an original quote. (laughs) See you next week, Gaylord, for a hostful. See you, Dixon. See you. Bye-bye. Sending you goats.